Welcome to the Russian Rulers History Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Schaus. Episode number two, Vladimir the Great and Sviatopolk the Accursed. Last episode, we talked briefly about who the Rus were, and we met their first leaders, starting with Rurik and ending with the victory of Vladimir I over his brother, the ill-fated Yaropolk. Today's episode, we're going to cover two Russian rulers, Vladimir the Great and Sviatopolk the Accursed, two vastly different men, one who improved and molded his country, the other set the stage for the eventual end of the influence of Kiev and the onset of the Russian Dark Ages. A few of my historian friends wondered why I wouldn't just do an episode on Vladimir alone, since his influence on Russian history was as great as anyone who would come after him. My thoughts are to show the differences between these two and point out how these differences helped make Russia what it would become. Or, as Winston Churchill once said about it, it's a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. Vladimir Sviatoslavich, known as Vladimir the Great, or Voldemir, as the Vikings would call him, was born in 958 as the result of a liaison between his father, Sviatoslav I, and a housekeeper, Malusha. Sometimes in history, the term the Great, following someone's name, is oftentimes presumptuous, but not this time. Vladimir was to make decisions that would influence Russia to this very day. Having finally ended the war with his half-brother Yaropolk, Vladimir worked on consolidating his power. Shortly after he seized the city of Kiev, a band of Varangian mercenaries demanded payment of one pound of silver for each citizen of the city. Vladimir, recognizing this as the first and most dangerous threat to his hold on power, used his power of persuasion to convince the Viking band that they should turn to Constantinople instead, as the riches there were just far greater. This ability to negotiate and influence people would serve Vladimir well over the years. Vladimir is known throughout history as the man who brought Christianity to his country. But he was not initially a pious man. Oh no, Vladimir was anything but. He was thought to have had over 700 concubines, as well as countless wives. His selection of wives included Vikings, Slavs, Czechs, Greeks, and Bulgars. His royal consort, who stayed with him for many years, was Rogned, the daughter of the Viking prince of Polotsk, Rogvolod. This was a marriage that was to produce Yaroslav I, also known as Yaroslav the Wise. The joining of Vladimir and Rogned was not your classic courtship. Anything but that. It was one of the oddest ones I've ever read about in Russian history. Vladimir fell head over heels in love with Rogned, but she didn't reciprocate. She wanted to marry his brother, Yaropolk. Instead of being happy with the courtship proposal, her father, Prince Rogvolod, insulted Vladimir by saying there was no way he could have his daughter's hand as he was an illegitimate son of a slave woman. This enraged Vladimir, already well known as a pretty much a hothead. He did what any good Varangian would do. He got his army together, raided the prince's town of Polotsk, killed the prince, both his sons, 
and took Rognad back to Novgorod and married her. This stuff you just can't make up, folks. Having many wives was not uncommon amongst the upper class and Vikings in general. The pagan religion they followed had no barriers to that. Paganism was pretty much the religious belief followed by most of the population, and after Vladimir's victory over his brother, he erected many statues of the favored gods, especially Perum, the god of thunder and lightning, Svarog, the father of the gods, and Strybog, the wind god. Not only that, he had almost 1,000 people sacrificed to the gods to celebrate the victory. It was at this point that Vladimir began to wonder about his chosen religion. He remembered the teachings of his grandmother, Olga, and asked his advisors to bring him emissaries from the major religions of the world to present their case. Kiev, the heart of Russia, was a vibrant city with numerous religions present. There were Khazar Jews, Byzantine and Catholic Christians, Muslims, and of course, pagans. Oftentimes, Vladimir would meet with the elders of these various religions, not only for personal reasons, but also for his people. This was a time of numerous revolts and a time of ambition, ambitious expansion of his realm. The main focus of Vladimir's gaze was south, towards Byzantium, and the city he wanted was Chersonesus, a port town near present-day Sevastopol. The only thing holding him back was a treaty between Kiev and Constantinople. An opening came in 988. Vladimir was asked by Byzantine Emperor Basil II to help crush a rebellion led by rogue general Bardas Phokas. Vladimir sent 6,000 of his finest and fiercest warriors who would be crucial to the war effort. But there was a catch, and yes, you may have guessed it, and involved another woman. Princess Anne, Basil II's sister, was what Vladimir wanted. With little choice because of the impending threat, Basil agreed, but as soon as victory was achieved, he backed out, which of course angered Vladimir again. Basil, trying to stall as Anne was not thrilled about marrying the rogue Russian, said that he couldn't abide by the deal because Vladimir wasn't a Christian. Vladimir answered by attacking and taking Chersonesus. The city gave up with little resistance. Still, he knew that it would behoove him to be at peace with Basil, as the Byzantine Emperor Empire was still very much a force to be reckoned with. It was at this time that Vladimir sent out envoys to find the right religion for himself and the Russian people. First to make a presentation were the Hazar Jews. When questioned about their history, they admitted to being driven out of Jerusalem, which caused Vladimir to retort, You are trying to teach others, you whom your God has punished? He would not have done that if he loved you or your laws. Obviously, Vladimir was not impressed, and they were sent away. Next up were the Bulgar Muslims. The idea that every good and worthy Muslim male upon entering heaven would be attended to by 70 virgins was very appealing to Vladimir, but the strict restriction of pork and alcohol wasn't tolerable. That would be an extremely hard sell to the hard-drinking Russians. Another no, and away went the Muslims. 
Following them came emissaries from the German Emperor Otto III to extol the virtues of Roman Catholicism. Their appeal initially was met quite positively. The deal-breaker was that the supreme leader could not be Vladimir. It was the man at the head of the Holy See, the Pope. This was something that the ambitious and power-hungry Vladimir could not accept. Next came the Byzantines. This was an important deal for Basil II, as he needed this important ally because of the numerous outside threats to his empire. They sent their best priests to convince Vladimir that Eastern Orthodox Christianity was the only choice for him and his people. One issue sparked his interest, the fact that the nation's ruler was also the head of the church. This doctrine fit Vladimir to a T. Still, this was a big decision, so Vladimir sent envoys to review the ceremonies and practices of the various religions, except for Judaism, which he dismissed outright. And this could be part of the uh, anti-Semitic feelings that you know, bounded through Russian history. So it might have started at this point here. Well, envoys who returned from Germany were not thoroughly impressed by Catholic rituals. Returning from the mosques of Bulgaria, they reported that the mosques were unclean and their religion was, quote, no good. This was an entirely different reaction to the one given after the Russian representatives came back from the most magnificent city of that time, Constantinople. The Emperor Basil II pulled out all the stops. The incense flowed and the choir sang as the pagans entered what was the most magnificent building in the world, the Hagia Sophia, the Cathedral of St. Sophia. Returning to Kiev, the emissaries spoke in awe of what they saw. They were quoted as saying they did not know whether we were in heaven or on earth. We only know that God dwells there. In 988, Vladimir, no doubt influenced by the teaching of his grandmother and soon-to-be Russian Orthodox saint, Olga, was baptized, which caused the reluctant Princess Anne, sister of Basil II, to leave the comfort of Constantinople to join Vladimir in the relative backwater city of Kiev. Vladimir went about the forced, although not difficult, conversion of his people. All pagan statues many of which were built by his order in 980 to celebrate his ascension to the princedom of Kiev, were removed, destroyed, and cast into the Dnieper River. What made the conversion easier was that relatively few people actually idolized the pagan statues. Also, it was obviously easier to convert and to feel the wrath of the temperamental Vladimir. But what he did next was nothing short of sheer genius. Grand Prince Vladimir decided that religious services for his newly found faith were not to be held in Greek, but in native Russian. This made the religion much more accessible to the people, as opposed to the Catholics who held their services in Latin, not the native language of the people. Since there were already many Russian-speaking priests in Kiev, and the fact that Constantinople gladly provided bilingual priests, the conversion process moved forward. Over time, because of Vladimir's decision to Russify his church, Russian Orthodoxy 
which shed much of the Greek influence to become a truly unique one, one that I'm personally a member of, hence part of the reason I love Russian history. It was Russian Orthodoxy that I was born into 969 years after Vladimir. Now, one consequence of this choice of Orthodoxy was the future isolation from the Roman Catholic Europe, especially during the Renaissance. Now, here's a dis you know something outside of history, but a suggestion I'd like to make to anyone to add to their bucket list or list of things you must do before you die, and it's to go to a Russian Orthodox Easter service. Be prepared, though. It is long, usually around four hours or more, and it starts late, around 11 o'clock at night, but it is a ceremony to behold. It was this ability to survive one of those Easter services that endeared my non-Orthodox wife to my parents. The next reform that Vladimir took on was the building of schools and the promotion of reading in the native Slavic language. Vladimir shed his concubines and numerous wives in favor of Anne. But if you think that all has changed Vladimir, think again as he wanted more land and power. He also wanted to crush the nuisance that was the Pechenegs. In 1007, he routed them, and in 1015, with Vladimir nearing death, his son Boris also soundly defeated them. Before we go further, a little background on the Pechenegs, or Patsenaks, as they appear a few times in early Russian history. They were a nomadic Turkish tribe, which first came onto the scene somewhere around the 8th or 9th centuries. Their name has two possible meanings. The first is a Turkish nation living around the country of the Rum, where Rum was the Turkish word for the Eastern Roman Empire or Byzantine Empire. The second is that it means a branch of the Oghuz Turks. Whatever their origins, they were also somewhat warlike and were a constant thorn in the side of the Kievian Rus. After defeating the Pechenegs on July 15, 1015, 35 years after his ascension to the throne of Kiev, Vladimir the Great passed away, leaving his empire to his 12 sons and many half-brothers. This was to lead to yet another civil war, this time led by Sviatopolk. His name for the history books was to be Sviatopolk, the accursed. The bodyguards of Vladimir wanted Boris to ascend to the throne, but he declined as he knew he would have to fight his brothers, which he did not want to do. He was very, very religious. But this was a fateful decision. Sviatopolk sent out two teams of assassins to kill both Boris and another half-brother, Gileb. Both were murdered while at prayer, which helped elevate the two as the first Russian Orthodox saints. Saints Boris and Gleb. Sviatopolk seized control of Kiev with only two half-brothers left to deal with, Mstislav of Tumu Torokin and Yaroslav of Novgorod. Yaroslav was furious with the murders of Boris and Gleb, while Mstislav, he was just content to solidify his defenses. Now, there are some who would suggest that this anger was a show as in the saga of Amund, it was suggested that the Varangians in the service of Yaroslav actually committed the murders. 
It is the primary chronicle that accuses Sviatopolk of the crimes. The primary chronicle, or Nestor's chronicle, was written by the monk Nestor around the year 1113. It is about Kievian history from 850 to 1100 as our best insight into the history of the time. How much of it is true? Well, we're really never going to truly know. Yaroslav began to gather his forces for the showdown with Sviatopolk. Upon hearing of the impending invasion in 1016, Sviatopolk made a deal with neighboring Poland, a Roman Catholic power who wanted to supplant the Eastern Orthodox Church with Catholicism. At first, Yaroslav gained the upper hand and seized Kiev again, but was quickly ousted by the army of the Poles. Sviatopolk made a fateful error, though, by forcing the people of Kiev to house the Polish army in their homes. The people, furious with this decision, began to systematically murder, likely with the encouragement of Yaroslav, many of their house guests, which caused the remaining Poles to return to their homeland. By 1019, Sviatopolk was in dire trouble, which, after being forced out of Kiev once again by Yaroslav, caused him to turn to the pesky Pesheneggs for support. They turned out to be poor allies, as they betrayed Sviatopolk as to not suffer the wrath of Yaroslav, who they saw as a much stronger and deadly threat. Sviatopolk was summarily killed, and Yaroslav promptly assumed the throne as Grand Prince of Kiev. Next episode, we follow the life of Yaroslav I, also known as Yaroslav the Wise, to the end of Kievian dominance. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Please either visit the website at RussianRulersHistory.com or join us on Facebook at the Russian Rulers History Podcast page, where you can leave a comment, make a suggestion, or ask a question. Also, there is a Russian Rulers iPhone app out there that you can purchase at the iTunes store, and it would just help pay for the podcast. I try not to do too many advertisements, as you might note. So, as always, das vidanya и спасибо большое.